Well, if you got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to John chapter 15. We're continuing uh, our study of the Gospel of John together as a church. We've been at this for some time. Today we're in John chapter 15, beginning at verse 18, and then going all the way to chapter 16 and verse 4. Uh, and just as we get into it, I'll just tell you that I, I titled this message, How to Lose Friends and Influence People. Um, most of you or many of you are too young to know that I actually modified the title of this sermon from a book that was written all the way back in the 1930s, like even before I was born. Um, and that book was written by Dale Carnegie. And that book was called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, but despite the fact that it was written so long ago, that book remains uh, immensely uh, influential. Lots of people, it's sold millions of copies. I looked this week and even uh, just on Amazon, it has 83,000 reviews. So lots of people have read it. Uh, I read the book back in the 1990s some point, and there's actually lots of helpful information in there about how to win friends and influence people. There are some ba- basic things like you ought to smile when you meet people. Uh, it's a good starting place. Uh, you should learn people's names. Uh, that, that's also helpful. Um, there, there's just lots of practical stuff, like you should listen to people when they talk because people like to talk about themselves. So you ask questions, that kind of stuff. And you should also avoid some subjects because that might lead to disagreements, and those disagreements might actually lose to, or lead to you losing friends or having conflict, that sort of thing. So I just saved you fifteen dollars. Um, you can thank me. Just slip me a five after, and and we're we're good. Um, but I didn't entitle this message "How to Win Friends and Influence People," but "How to Lose Friends and Influence People." Now I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but not completely. Um, I was a Christian for about a grand total of one day before I discovered that not everyone would share my enthusiasm for my decision to follow Jesus. Uh, I've told you, you know, my story before, I did not grow up in a Christian home. Uh, My teenage years were spent experimenting with uh, alcohol and drugs, getting into lots of fights, lots of stuff like that. I was... uh, Uh, I had suicidal thoughts at times, and I remember being invited to church. Now, I had been listening to some Christian heavy metal music. That's what got me interested, but someone invited me to church, and I went on a Sunday night. I heard the the good news of the gospel, and I surrendered my life to Jesus on that night. I was so excited because I I, I felt like I had this brand new start. I remember even on the drive home, stopped off at 7-Eleven to get a Slurpee, right? That's how you celebrate that kind of thing. Um... And the clerk was like, uh, how are you doing? And I said, oh, man, I just accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm, I'm doing great, right? He just kind of had this blank look on his face like, what does that mean? I don't know. Um, but the next day, my parents were away. This was a long weekend, um, September long weekend. And my parents were away, and I cleaned the house. I mean, they came home to a very clean house. When they got home that evening and sort of asked how the weekend was, I sat them both down. I gave them each a copy of the four spiritual laws, and I went through that with them. And they weren't so thrilled with whatever this new thing was in my life. Like, what happened to our son? Um, 
Now, that, I was a bit overzealous, I mean, to be sure, right? And that probably wasn't the best way to approach my parents and, and all of that. But actually, that sort of led to, you know, over the years, there was actually lots of tension around that. My decision to follow Jesus, there were times my, I remember I got my hair cut really short one time, and my mom was like, I'm pretty sure he's joined a cult, right? Because it, like, that's what this is. And so over the years, there were these sort of points of tension of, my decision to follow Jesus and how that conflicted with, you know, family values or whatever it might be. And I would just say, not everyone will share your enthusiasm for your decision to follow Jesus. You might actually lose friends. You might find yourself on the outside of social circles. You might get passed over for a job or for a promotion because of your faith in Jesus. And it might be hard to imagine, but there might actually come a day when you might experience the kind of persecution that many of our brothers and sisters have experienced all through time and all over the world. So with that as a backdrop, let's read our passage. As I said, it's John 15, starting at verse 18 and going to chapter 16, verse 4. It says this. This is Jesus, right in the middle of his farewell discourse, his words to his disciples. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Well, it's quite an encouraging passage, isn't it? Follow Jesus, and you can expect hatred and opposition and persecution. I mean, where do I sign up for this? I think there's actually lots that's worth exploring in this passage, but I want to drill down into three main ideas or themes. The first one is that friendship with Jesus often makes you an enemy of the world. Now, I put that in terms of friendship for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first is because of what Jesus says in the verses that immediately precede these ones, and we were in John 15 last week, but we didn't spend a lot of time in verses 12 to 17. Just want you to listen to those verses. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Friends. 
For all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus calls us his friends. Now that's awesome. But if we just were to read those verses in isolation, we might think, well, that is awesome. I mean, Jesus chose me. He calls me his friend. I'm pretty good at name dropping. So this is going to open all kinds of doors, all kinds of doors for me. That's what it means, right? But Jesus follows that up by saying, okay, you're my friends. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So far from telling us or promising us that associating with him will result in all kinds of worldly success and applause from our neighbors, Jesus says plainly that his followers can often expect a reception similar to the one he got. Now, maybe when you hear that, you wonder if it's true. I mean, they'll hate you. My neighbors don't hate me. At least I don't, I don't think they do. You might have lots of good relationships with people who aren't Christians. So what does it mean that the world might hate us because we're followers of Jesus? Well, maybe the first thing we need to do is just to define that word, world. The word world is a favorite of John's. He uses it five times just in verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Actually, six times, right? Five times in verse 19, once in verse 18. And actually, John uses that word 61 times, the word world, 61 times in the gospel of John. He uses it 19 more times in the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And what we need to know is that he uses that word differently in different contexts. So sometimes the word world is simply a reference to the world that God created, the earth, we might say, right? So back in John chapter 1, it tells us that the world was created through Jesus. So that's a reference to the world as the planet that we live on. Is that what it means here in John chapter 15? Does he mean that the world, as in the earth, hates us? And I wouldn't even mention that as a a possibility, except that some radical environmentalists would have us think just, just that, right? That humans are somehow a blight on the earth, all that we've done, and so therefore the world, the earth, hates us. Uh, that's not the meaning of the word here. But the word, the word world can also mean all the people of the world. It can be sort of shorthand for that. So when John 3.16 says that God so loved the world, it means he loved all the people of the world. And, and John uses the word world that way lots of times, that Jesus is the light of the world or he is the savior of the world. So does he mean that all the people in the world will hate us? Well, that would seem odd given uh, everything else that Jesus says. So there's a third way that the word world is used in John's writings. And the word world, a bit of a tongue twister, is often used to describe the world as a system or the world system. 
And the clearest place to see this is in the letter of 1 John, chapter 2. And there John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the reason John can say both, God so loved the world, and tell us that we're not supposed to love the world, is because he's using the word in different ways. The world as a system is that which is hostile to God. James Boyce described it like this. He said, it is the world of men in rebellion against God. And consequently, it is inclusive of the world's values pleasures, pastimes, and aspirations, right? That's the, the world as a system in rebellion against God. Now, maybe that seems a little bit theoretical. So what does it mean or what does it look like to say that the world hates you because you're a follower of Jesus? I was interested to read an article uh, in the New York Post dated December 30th, 2022, so less than a month ago. And the article was about the singer M.I.A. Um, I know you, lots of you look to me for your, you know, kind of musical knowledge and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, I wasn't super familiar with her. In fact, I had to ask someone in the office, is it Mia? Is it Maya? What is, no, it's M.I.A. Okay, M.I.A. Um, her career has been somewhat controversial, to say the least. Uh, she was banned from entering the United States at, at one point back in 2006 because she supported a U.S.-designated terrorist group. She was later allowed to enter into the country uh, and actually performed at the halftime show at the Super Bowl alongside of Madonna in 2012. But then after that, she had to settle a, loss, a lawsuit with the NFL because she gave everyone the finger in the middle of the performance while it's on TV, all of that stuff. Um, She's been known as something of a bad girl in music. And I was interested in this article because she's recently made a profession of faith in Christ. Now, that's interesting in and of itself. Um, They cite another interview she did in Relevant Magazine. She said this, Right now, I think the only clear thing I can say is that even when I had no belief in Jesus Christ and Christianity... And even when I was 100% comfortable with Hinduism, it was the Christian God that turned up, turned up to save me. Now, that's interesting, but actually the most interesting part of the article is that she said she has received more backlash for declaring her faith in Jesus than she received for anything else she did in her career. So just think about that for a minute. You can sing all kinds of raunchy lyrics. You can have unpopular political opinions. The world will tolerate all of that, but declare your faith in Jesus as the only way to salvation, and you find yourself hated by many. Now, most of us aren't celebrities. Uh, The kind of backlash or the kind of opposition we will face might look different, but if we are serious about following Jesus, we will encounter the world's opposition and even the world's hatred at times. So I want to say two things as a follow-up to that. The first is that this shouldn't surprise us. Remember the context. Jesus is giving his disciples some final instructions before his departure. 
He's trying to prepare them for what lies ahead. Now, there are some things he says here that are specific to the apostles. In verse 2 of chapter 16, he'll say, you're going to be put out of the synagogues. Most of us aren't in synagogues, but we can make an analogous application. And I think there's a principle here that's transcendent of first century specifics. So verse 20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus says something similar to that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So experiencing persecution actually puts us in good company. It's what happened to the prophets. It's what happened to Jesus. It's what happened to the apostles. It is what happens to Jesus' followers. The apostle Paul said it this way, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we have to be careful with this. We don't want to develop sort of a, you know, a martyr complex and think that everything negative is, is persecution. Right? Someone saying season's greetings instead of Merry Christmas is not persecution. We don't want to diminish the kind of direct physical persecution that many of our brothers and sisters face in, in different parts of the world. But persecution is actually a broad term. You can see it in the way Jesus refers to it in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when they revile you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you on my account. So persecution can mean anything from being hated to being reviled to having false things said about you on account of your commitment to Jesus to actual physical persecution. And I'm just bringing the reminder, this shouldn't surprise us. John will say the exact same thing elsewhere. He will say, do not be surprised, brothers or brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. And here Jesus says he's telling it to the disciples before it happens so that when it does happen, they won't be surprised. Second thing we ought to know about this is that there are actually several reasons for this. Now, when I thought about this idea, you know, the world will hate you. Uh, I don't know why, but the thing that jumped to my mind was a moment from Seinfeld. And uh, in one of the episodes, Jerry's parents come to visit and they discover that there is someone who does not like their son. And I can hear Jerry's mom saying, that's ridiculous. How could anybody not like Jerry? And I think we can kind of feel like that at times. I mean, how ridiculous? How could anyone not like us? We're good neighbors. Right? We try to love all of that stuff. How could anybody, certainly, who could hate us, possibly? Well, Jesus gives several reasons for the hostility towards him, and I think by extension, the hostility towards us. I see at least four reasons highlighted here. The first reason we can expect to receive this kind of opposition at times is because we are not of the world. We don't have the same values that the world has. Here's what he says. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, being not of the world means that we don't necessarily participate in or celebrate 
all the things that the world does. Now, sometimes there's pushback to this idea. People will say something like, well, maybe the reason you get that kind of opposition is because, you know, you're smug and you're self-righteous and you're just being a jerk or something like that. And there may be times where that is the case. We know we're supposed to act with gentleness and respect and all of that. But sometimes you can be as gentle as you can and as respectful as you can, and you still get that kind of opposition. I don't know if you saw the controversy that erupted in Philadelphia this week. Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Provorov didn't take part in the warm-up skate on, on Tuesday night because it was Pride Night, and he didn't want to wear the rainbow jersey they were wearing for the warm-ups. Well, forget the game. That became the singular focus of the media. He was peppered with questions afterwards, and he said, I respect everyone, but I made the choice to stay true to myself and my religion. Now, Provorov is a Russian Orthodox Christian. His decision, though, not to participate earned him the usual labels, bigoted, homophobic, and reading through the Twitter comments, it earned him lots and lots of what you could only describe as hatred. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Celebrate what the world celebrates and you will have no problem. Just go along to get along. And I just say, as Christians, we're often faced with a choice. Now, I'm not trying to create an us and them mentality, but we're often faced with a choice because our commitment to follow Jesus will come into conflict with the values of the world. And sometimes the choice is between friendship with with the world and faithfulness to Jesus. James says it like this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, another reason for the world's hatred of Jesus Jesus was speaking into this context, is because they did not know the Father. And you see that in verse 21 of chapter 15 and then verse 3 of chapter 16. So verse 21, he says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And then verse 3 of chapter 16 says, And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So they claimed to... If you know the, they, they claimed to know God, but when Jesus came and he unpacked for them what God was really like, it didn't match the image of God that they had created for themselves in their minds. And that is still a thing. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I like Jesus, but not the church. And often when you press into that stuff a little bit more, what they really mean is, The Jesus they like is not necessarily the Jesus of the Bible. Sort of like the the Grammy Award speech Jesus that everyone likes. Just blesses everything you do. They like the Jesus that holds to all the views they hold to. And you start preaching the Jesus of the Bible, and that's where the roadblocks come up. A third reason they hated Jesus was because he exposed their sin. This is what Jesus is driving at in verses 22 to 24. 
He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Now, Jesus is not saying, well, they had no sin before I came. But that his words and his works exposed their sin. It was like a giant spotlight was shone on it. That made them uncomfortable. That caused them to reject him and oppose him. And we might experience something similar. I mean, speak up, share your convictions on any issue of morality, and you can expect something like that. The world will tolerate your faith as long as it's not specific, right? As long as you don't go all radical, start thinking there's a concrete standard of right and wrong. As long as you don't say, well, it's salvation in Jesus alone. And if you need a fourth reason for this hatred, you can see it in verse 25 where it simply says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And sometimes it's like that. It's not a specific thing. It's just sort of like there's a dislike for everything we might represent. Pretty happy message so far, I know. Uh, There is a second thing to pay attention to in this passage, and that is that encountering hostility doesn't mean we should run and hide. Now, I told you I call this message how to lose friends and influence people, and I said it was partly tongue-in-cheek. I do want to say the second part of this, the how to influence people part, is actually still something we see here. So my first point was that friendship with the world often makes you an enemy, or friendship with Jesus often makes you an enemy of the world. And I said often and not always for a reason. Notice again what it says in verse 20. Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So if they persecuted me, they will persecute you, yes. But it also says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And I would just say, we don't stop preaching the gospel because we encounter opposition to it. There will be some who will respond to it. I think I've told you this before, but the most famous sermon ever preached in a North American context is the one preached by Jonathan Edwards in Enfield, Connecticut on July 9th, 1741. His sermon title was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was a message on the horrors of hell. And part of the reason that sermon became so famous is because of what happened as a result of it. As the people sat and listened to Edward's sermon, many of them began weeping. Some of them started crying out, how can I be saved? And what happened afterwards can only be described as the outpouring of God's spirit. A revival started in that little town that eventually spread all over New England. Became one of the greatest revivals in the United States. Came to be known as the Great Awakening. It started with Edward's sermon. And many people have heard of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What most people don't know about it is that July 9th, 1741, was not the first time he preached it. He preached the exact same sermon a month earlier in his home church in Northampton, Connecticut. You know what the response was? Nothing. There was no weeping. There's no crying out, how do I 
be saved. There was no repentance. There was no revival. And I share that with you because we do not know what will happen when we share the good news of the gospel with someone. Some might hate us. Some will hear and think it's the best news ever. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about this. He said, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Right? So to one group of people, our preaching is like the smell of death or the aroma or the stench of death. I want nothing to do with it. But to others, it's the very fragrance of life. So we just keep preaching the gospel. We just keep sowing seeds, knowing some of it's going to fall on hard soil, not be received well at all. But some of it will fall on soil that is receptive. Now, I think the reason it's hard for us sometimes to do this, especially if you encounter any opposition, is because it feels like we're completely alone. I mean, you might be the only Christian in your workplace or in your family or among your classmates at school. Sometimes we identify with Elijah when he wondered if he was the only one who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. God assured him he was not. And that's true for us as well. It's part of the reason why I think it's so important to be connected to a local church, just to be reminded. These are my brothers and sisters all experiencing the same thing. But even more than that, we need to remember we're actually never alone and that the work of the gospel is never just up to us. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 26 and 27. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. See, we're never alone because we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to the world. That's part of his job. We're going to look at what that means in more detail next week. But notice that it also says that we will bear witness. And I think it's a little bit unfortunate. But when we hear the word witness, I mean, some of us just, you know, kind of get clammy palms. Like, I, I, I don't know about it because we think of witnessing as one thing. But we, we think bearing witness means Witnessing, like street witnessing or something like that. Now, it, it does mean witnessing, but not necessarily in the way we, we might think. Hey, I noticed your car has four wheels. Have you heard of the four spiritual laws, right? That's not exactly what it means. What does it mean to bear witness? What well, we ought to understand that the word witness is a legal term. A witness is someone who testifies. That's what we're called to do. So just think about the context that Jesus, uh, of what Jesus was saying. What should we do when we face opposition or even hatred? Well, the answer is not to go into hiding. It's not what Jesus says. The answer is not retaliating in kind. I'm going to pay back evil for evil. The answer is that we should bear witness. We should testify. And let me just try to illustrate what I'm talking about, what that looks like with a biblical example. So many of you are familiar with the very first verse of Hebrews chapter 12. That verse says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That verse comes on the heels of Hebrews chapter 11, sometimes referred to as the hall of faith, right? It's this great catalog of stories about individuals in the Old Testament who were who lived by faith. That's the great cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by. When lots of people hear that, they think of these people as witnesses in the sense of they're watching them, right? They're cheering us on. It's not actually what it means. What it means is that we are surrounded. We have all these examples from the beginning of time who testified, who bore witness with their lives as to what it means to live by faith in a hostile world. So listen to one section from Hebrews 11, because I think you can see this clearly, where the writer says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Right? Those are all the individuals who accomplished all of those great things by faith. But then it says, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's what it looks to looks like to bear witness in a hostile world. It means we live our lives by faith, whether we're conquering kingdoms or whether we're being sawn in two. We remain faithful. That's bearing witness. Final thing we need to know from this passage is that the greatest danger we face from opposition is not suffering or even death, but apostasy. Listen again to the first two verses of chapter 16. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. So let's just think about this for a minute. Jesus highlights two potential costs of discipleship. One is social. They will put you out of the synagogues. Again, you don't have to have been part of a synagogue to experience something like this. Standing for your convictions might mean you're considered to be on the outside of polite society. You might be excluded from certain social circles, be the odd one out on a team, whatever that might look like. There might be a social cost to your decision to follow Jesus. And Jesus also highlights the potential physical costs of discipleship. He says, basically, look, the time is coming when they'll kill you and they'll think they're doing the world a favor. And that was the fate met by most of the 12 apostles. Now, not everyone is asked to pay that price, but it is a cost that many followers of Jesus have paid through the centuries. And this was not just in the past. According to the latest report just published in Christianity Today, 
It indicates that more than 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith in 2022. More than 2,100 churches were attacked or closed. More than 124,000 individuals were forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith. Confiscation, beatings, imprisonment, and death are the kind of things none of us wants to experience. But as serious as those things are, Jesus tells us the greatest danger is that we would apostatize or fall away from Jesus. He says, I'm telling you these things so that you do not fall away. That's the danger we face. It's that in our desire for the world's approval or in the face of opposition, we would deny Jesus. And there's a sad example of this in the New Testament among one of Paul's ministry companions. Paul would later write this. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Right? The reason for Demas's departure, not just from Paul, but from the faith, was that he was in love with this present world. And that, I want to say to you, church, is the choice before us. Friendship with the world or faithfulness to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for the amazing truth that Jesus does call us his friends. And we are grateful for that relationship that changes all other relationships. And Lord, we know we experience this in different ways. Even as we read it, some of it sounds foreign to us, um, but some of it is, is reality. We have experienced some of those things or we're afraid of experiencing them. And God, I pray that you would help us to exercise our faith in you, even when the response is not the one that we want, Lord. Would we be faithful to you to the end? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.